Welcome to another recording of the game of crowdfunding interview edition. We are recording August 1st, 2013. And this time I am sitting down with Adam Farrell Trzynkowski of Epic Slant Press. That's right. Epic Slant Press. And Adam is currently working on a Kickstarter that will be coming to us very soon. And uh, we will be getting to that in a little bit. But first, uh, we're going to, you know, do it like we normally do. Get to know Adam a bit. Start with our uh, questions that we always ask. And then just drill further into uh, his life story, of course. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we do have a few questions that we like to ask Adam. And one of the first ones is usually either generally speaking or as specific as you want to get. What do you do professionally, sir? Oh, yes. Well, professionally, I do nothing related to what we're going to be talking about today. I am actually a data engineer, so I kind of make sure that large parts of the Internet don't disappear. And I've done that for a little while now. I used to do it on the defense side, and I've since kind of left that for sort of the private side. And uh, I do okay with that. Sometimes the Internet crashes, but when it does, it's not me. I only control a very small portion. (laughs) Well, you know what? I could still access the internet today, so good job, Adam. Thanks for keeping me entertained. Hooray! (laughs) All right, and then we, of course, being uh, sponsored by Yala's Geeks Podcast, we like to know what makes you a geek, good sir. All kinds of stuff, really. It's been a very long road of geekiness. My dad had hoped for a sort of a football player, and I well, I showed him, even though my dad is a fairly geeky guy too, but he, he kind of did it all. But it started, I guess, when I was in my early teens, I would say. I mean, maybe as young as 12. A buddy of mine picked up Dungeons and & Dragons, and then Magic Cards, and from Dungeons and & Dragons and Magic Cards to GURPS and Shadowrun and computer games. And before that, I was an outside kid. I didn't play sports, but, you know, I ran around in the woods, and that slowly declined. These days... I've kind of gone through a long period where I just played MMOs. I was sort of a thing, in quotes, if in MMOs, if you could ever be a quote-unquote thing. I like to liken it to a, I'm a D-list MMO celebrity. So that's <laughs> maybe, maybe even E. I don't know. D might be generous. But for a little while, I did some serious MMO-ness. And lately, I've been back to my tabletop roots from my youth, I like to call it. And that's pretty much what I do these days. We play, you know, Pandemic, we play Small World, we play Catan, that kind of stuff. Because in everything I've done, all the games I've played, you know, including MMOs, it had to be social. So I guess I'm a social geek, if that makes sense. Like, that's what I like. I just want to play games with other people. No, that makes perfect sense to me because I've I've said several times that my interest in tabletop is a lot of the social part. Like I personally don't necessarily care if I win or lose, or uh, I can even show up at a game at a game event and be like, uh, "No, guys, don't you, you know I, I'm good. Keep going with what you're going. I know even if you just started, I can sit here and, and socialize with you guys and jump on the next game. So I'm I'm right there with you on that part. It makes sense, and <laughs> I run into that a lot where it's kind of funny because I have a friends, you know, multiple friends that play differently and I'm kind of the same way. Like I like to play just to play and I have a buddy who always plays to win and I drive him nuts because he's like, he's like, you're not trying as hard as you would. I'm like, I don't care. I just, I just like playing with you. I'm sorry. And then another one that we've been asking lately is, do you have a particular passion that somebody might not consider geek related, but you yourself know that if had, if you had the opportunity Somebody would not escape you if if you could talk about it? <laughs> oh, that's tricky. I mean, there are... I do have passions. 
you know, I do a lot of writing. That's, you know, been my base on this whole, like, after-hours things, and that's been pretty passionate. I guess you could say I, I've had a lot of passion about writing fiction. It's something I've never done. It's kind of my, maybe not so much the not being a geek with it. Maybe I'm a closet, you know, fiction writer geek. Okay. Well, that ends the uh, scripted portion of this interview. <laughs> Woo! All right. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, you passed, uh, and the the uh, interview will continue. Oh, excellent. Great. <laughs> Here's where I thought we would possibly start, Adam, and then if you want to diverge into something else, that's awesome. Uh, we'll take this however you, you want to, uh, steer the boat. But I kind of know Adam a bit off and on, and, you know, we, obviously we've had conversation or, you know, many conversations or 140 character conversations, I guess. Oh, on yeah. Twitter. Absolutely. <laughs> but Adam is actually a podcaster as well. This is true. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? I've been podcasting for a very long time under different show names, but in general, I started a podcast a long time ago with my buddy Chris, or rather, Chris and I agreed to start a podcast, not like I'm the big impetus behind this, but you know what I'm saying. And he and I did this MMO-related podcast, especially when I was really big into the MMOs, and our first podcast was called The Multiverse, which we basically used so that we could also talk about just other games, because Chris plays single-player games, which they burn me when I touch them, because there's no people there. I, I just can't play them. So we did that, and these days, we, we've gone through a couple different show titles, we've been picked up by a different network, but now we do Game On, Epic Slant Press Edition. Oh, it's a hoity-toity title. And that was agreement between us and MMORPG.com, who's been very, very, very kind to us. They're great people. So they've partnered with Epic Slant Press, which is my little, in quotes, company, and emphasis on little and quotes. But, you know, we do this show together, and it's sort of this fusion where we talk about MMOs primarily, but I also make the effort of bringing tabletop to the MMO masses and also abuse Chris with it. So what normally happens is, Chris will ask me about some new hot MMO. He's like, so have you played this? And I'm like, dude, have you met me? You know I haven't played it. But, but have you played this card game? And that's kind of the thing go back that we go back and forth on. And the, the joke is is that we, quote unquote, meet and compete for gamers' attentions. He tries to sway people towards digital gaming. I sway people towards analog gaming. So far, I think he's won 90% of our audience. And <laughs> I'm okay with that. As long as I put a card game in somebody's hands, we're good. I've got to uh, say that and it was awesome timing too, because actually my co-host Jordan and I had just discussed this off audio. So it was a conversation we were having off audio, but we were, had just been talking about the fact that Ultima Online was still around. And then I listened to one of your recent episodes where you guys dedicated a fair amount of time to Ultima Online. Absolutely. Which was one of the few MMOs that I really got into for a while. It's an amazing MMO. People just, I guess they just don't realize that it's, there's nothing like it right now. I mean, there, that's the thing. So, yes, there's just nothing like it. And it was something that we were really excited to go back and play. And, you know, Chris is good, and he, he laughs. He's like, sometimes I just can't go back on the graphics. He's like, I don't know how you're doing that. But I'm all about mechanics. And I like sprites, personally. That's my favorite kind of graphics ever. I never got past a Super Nintendo. And I, I actually, well, one, I don't do a lot of MMOs because... I am the opposite of you. <laughs> I always solo. I gotcha. So, like, my friend got me into World of Warcraft. It took forever. I, I went kicking and screaming. I'm, I don't play anymore. 
But I started playing and he was thrilled because, you know, he's like, you want to join our guild? You want to do this? And I was, and I was I was like, no, nah, I'm good, man. So he was kind of upset because he thought he was bringing in like another raid buddy. Oh, of course. That Well, that's how it works. Trust me. Anytime you get another body in there, you're like, oh, thank goodness. We've got someone else that can fill X role. Yeah. And I was like, I'm good. I, I'm, I'm way over here by myself. Nobody's around. I'm fine. So he wasn't happy about that. I can imagine not. But my running comment is that the Skyrim game, especially when they started adding the ability to like build and make up your house and all that stuff. Right. My comment has always been, and this is leading back to the Ultima Online conversation, if they would just let me put a vendor on my porch, this would be my perfect MMO. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, they are producing one, but I don't know how that's going to play out. Your current podcast, I've listen to off and on and and every time i've listened to it i've been entertained and like i said i'm not a big mmoer but you guys talk about uh mmos and i get to kind of get caught up on them and every once in a while i kind of think about eh, maybe i should try another one but the ultima online one really caught me for a while there so that was awesome to hear especially so close to the conversation that jordan and i had so that was great. Well, I always advocate going back and playing older games, especially ones that have been really true to themselves. So, and Ultima Online has been. I just wish it would get a little bit more support. They could actually generate some, you know, good revenue if they would put a little bit more effort in it. But unfortunately, they kind of laid off some of the team. It's pretty tight now. I think it's down to 10 people. And your podcast is a mouthful, the title. Yes. Yeah, that was... When I when I did the promo for you guys, I, I think I recorded the name like three times because I think I kept putting weird emphasis on it. Well, and that's what, unfortunately, kind of how it worked out. And so the way I shorten it is maybe Game On ES Press Edition. Because if we do Game On ESP Edition, it means something entirely different. And that is not a talent that I have. <laughs> Well, and I should say, it should go without saying, but anything that we discuss, so especially Adam's podcast and, and all that good stuff, there will be links in our show notes. So you can check out the show notes and definitely go check out his podcast and the other projects that we talk about. Yes, please do. I would appreciate it. <laughs> How long have you been doing that on the just the Game On title then? Just the Game On title. Well, not terribly long let's let me think here for a second i think we just did episode what would be their episode 18 so 18 weeks because we are without a shadow of a doubt we do one show a week even if it's terrible because people like consistency how did you get the mmorpg hook up there well that's a good question and it's basically all chris so we kind of agreed that we just like podcasting and our whole argument was the two of us like to get together and just, you know, shoot the breeze. So as long as we had one person listen to us, we would just keep doing the show. He agreed. That was our entire goal. You know, we did pretty good when we had absolutely no coverage. I think we were pulling in on day one about a hundred listens. You know, that's very tiny, but you know, on your first day, about a hundred listens and it, and it ramped up. Well, Chris is a freelance journalist and a very good one, by the way. And so he has been doing a column with MMORPG, and he went to the director and said, Hey, listen, you guys have the Game On podcast, but I, I've noticed that you don't frequently record. And the director said, Well, you know, you're right. It's something we want to do more, but there's only so many hours in the day. Chris said, Well, listen, we do a weekly podcast. Why don't we just do it for you? And they were very kind. They did not really ask for anything other than for us to change the name, which, of course, I said, no problem. And then they said, well, do you still want to brand it? And I said, well, why not? So it's it's both brandings. It's their Game On is their podcast. And then, you know, Epic Slant Press is me. 
when I first heard that, I thought, oh, this is really cool that you, you guys are associated with the MMORPG uh, brand. They're a great bunch of people. I think on the MMO space, people more frequently go to Massively, but the numbers at MMORPG are actually really, really high, and it's a lot of quality writing on the site. Not saying that Massively is not. I have friends there, but I just think MMORPG is really great. Let's transition a little bit then maybe into the uh, Epic Slant side of things. How did that come about? And basically, what is it? I mean, what what are you using that brand for? That's a fair question. Let me definitely talk about what we're using it for currently. Or yes, let me go that way. So currently, we've finally agreed that it is a general small press publishing company that will publish books, RPG things, and or games. So that's currently our directive. Now, how did that start? Forever and a day ago, in the lands of yore, when I was a D-list MMO celebrity, at that point I was definitely a D-lister. This was in the days of EverQuest 2, when EverQuest 2 and World of Warcraft were brand new. I led a guild called Iniquity, and we were the number four guild in all of EverQuest 2 at the time. So when we wrote things, people listened. Because, you know, we weren't number one, we definitely weren't number two or three, but we frequently won out number four. Sometimes, not always, but, you know, we were definitely top five, top ten. EQ2 didn't have very many guilds, so it was pretty high up there. So our website got a huge amount of traffic. People came in and listened. So me and another officer worked together. He was an artist. He would draw funny comics. And I was a writer, so I would write editorials, as high-end raid leaders are wont to do, because for some reason we think our opinion matters more. And so that's what I would frequently do. I would write editorials, and we would get... I mean, I never had the amount of traffic that we had then. When I was that guild leader, none of my websites, nothing I've ever done has ever had that amount of traffic a day. It was a lot. I don't remember the exact numbers, but I just know it was really good. We were The Iniquity site was a very big EQ2 site. And, and again, Josh, the officer, was an amazing artist. So for as much as they would come to read the writing, they would go to look at his hilarious comics. And he would do those frequently. So that's where I really got into, quote-unquote, game journalism, so to speak, when... It came to the point where I was spending more time leading that guild and playing that game than I was just doing my life. I finally decided it was time to retire. Plus, a lot of our core members had kind of had the same thing, and the people we were with, I didn't know them as well, so I felt like it was a good time to kind of hand off and go. When that happened, I still wanted to write, so I started this site called MMOology, you know, kind of like being smart. Ooh, the science of MMOs. I'm so clever. And I did that for a while. And compared to my huge audience, I did not transition over a very big audience. They were all fair-weather audience because I was no longer this big guild leader. So that went on for a little while, and it was terrible, I guess you could say. I think that's a good way. I did all the web design and stuff myself, and... It didn't go well, and no one understood what immunology was, or immunology, and I can't even say it, what it was. No one, no one got it. <laughs> so it, it was a bad, the whole thing was just bad. Well, fast forward a little bit to the Age of Conan launch. By that point, I'm like, okay, I want to get a little bit more back into leading guilds and a little bit less into obscurity, so to speak. So I launched a guild in Age of Conan. We did pretty well. And I also was like, I need to relaunch a blog and get rid of this whole immunology business because this is ridiculous. At that point, I don't know how I came up with it, but the cleverness of it was, okay, it would be commentary with an epic slant, meaning, you know, we kill epics, if that makes sense. So that's where the name came from and how the whole thing. Somehow it stuck. Don't know how, but people started reading that, especially when Warhammer Online came out. When that came out, I joined with a bunch of bloggers, which is really interesting because this whole group of people got together and we just blog shared and we all blogged together. And 
by doing that, it propelled all of us. I mean, and there were some really great ones there that are now, you know, super game journalists. Like a lot of them, really, that core group from that project went on to do really great things. Like almost all of us, really. And so that really started bringing in the traffic. And I've done Epic Slant for, I want to say we went past five years on the blog itself. The blog has slowed down because I just don't have time. And I'm not playing MMO, so it doesn't make sense. But eventually, when I decided I was going to write a book, I looked into trying to find a publisher. And I'm not into that sort of thing. It's fine. It makes sense. It's a good way to do it. But, you know, I'm like, I'm not going to go try to do a dance for these people to see if they want to sell my book. I was like, you know what? The Internet says I can do this on my own. So I made a huge sum of mistakes but ultimately cobbled together something that was almost an actual book and managed to get it out there, and I did it under Epic Slant Press, as in, you know, a publishing company. That's a long way of saying how we get today. So that first book did okay, actually. It was reviewed well, but it was very unprofessional. I'm not going to lie. It always bothered me. I didn't even have, like, a real editor. I just sort of winged it. You know, my girlfriend went through it. My friends went through it. It's not a bad book, don't get me wrong, but it's not a professional book. I also decided that, you know, I looked at the market and there was no, like, there's no official book on how to raid. There were some Guild Leaders books, but there's none on how to raid. So I wrote that book, did it very professional with the Epic Slant Press brand. It came out really well. The failing on that little plan was the reason why there is no book on raiding is because raiders don't want to be told what to do. <laughs> uh, and so anyway, that's how we got into this whole thing. I was like, well, you know, if, I, if I'm going to write books, I'm going to publish them myself. And that actually worked out really well for us. And so when I got to this point where we were going to do a game, you know, I watch on Twitter. I read all these things. You know, you talked about me being on Twitter. And I look at all these people that are, like, coming up with these amazing ideas. And, you know, they might not be the next Monopoly. That's I'm sorry. They would kill me if I said oh. that. Yeah. They may not be the next Settlers of Catan. <laughs> there but, you go. But, you know, it's a game worth playing in that they could have a small market for. And they're going to these publishers. They're getting no's. And I just said, you know what? I publish books. I can put together and publish a game just the same. And that's how we got to where we are today. How many books do you have out under the uh, Epic Slant Press brand? Two that we sell, technically three, but the first one I've done everything to make sure it doesn't see the light of day. But <laughs> so we have two active titles. I had a third manuscript that I was working on, and then that's when I kind of got interested in doing the game design and, and the web design. We also do web design as part of it, but that's like a whole another conversation I won't get into, but I got more into those aspects of it. And then the lack of playing MMOs really reduced my motivation to finish that manuscript. And so it, it's just sort of several thousands of words sitting somewhere. Okay. So you've spent some time writing books and putting those together and learning that process and trying to put out things that you could potentially sell. Mm -hmm. Is there anything you brought from that process into, okay, I, I want to make a game. Yes, definitely. Uh, I will say this in two ways. One, there's a lot of stuff that did translate over. And two, there's a lot of stuff that I thought would translate over that did not. <laughs> All right. I learned from my books definitely about getting the right people regardless of the cost. Because the upfront cost of getting the correct people far outweighs the ultimate cost of having a poor project. So, that brought, I mean, basically by doing the books, I had a great team in place. I had found an editor, like a very a professional editor. She does freelance editing, but her day job is editor. Like that's what she does. She edits books for a living. And so she comes home and does a little freelance now and then and works with me. 
I had made contacts with some artists, one in particular who I worked very well with, so now she's there. You know, programmers, community relations people, all that stuff. So I brought a really solid team over. So I kind of look at when these people out there, I can't grasp it because these guys are so good, they do a game by themselves. Like, they come up with the idea and do that. I have a team. That's the one thing where people are like, well, how are you, you know, how did you get this done so fast? I'm like, well... I've always had a core team of five, and sometimes the team's been as big as eight, depending on what I needed. So, you know, I just delegate, and we do that. I also know a lot about formatting things for printers, so people would be surprised, but printing a book and printing cards are actually not that dissimilar, because basically printers are annoying no matter what. So (laughs) they're very specific. So we've gotten good at that. Obviously, you know, it takes a lot to put together a book, so, you know, the process management, all that, is there. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff I brought forward in that sense. On the other sense, being a long-term game player and being a author doesn't qualify you necessarily to be a game designer. Yeah. <laughs> I have learned a lot about how to appropriately design a game. So, that's a good transition then cuz that's one of the things I want to talk to you about and I like to get because these are kind of, well, I think these interviews are threefold. Obviously, one, we obviously want people to know about what you've got coming up, but two and three is we have indie game designers that tend to listen. So we like to basically give them some some tools that they could potentially use that other people have already gone through and learned. And then the other part is, of course, the Kickstarter process or crowdfunding process. Yes. So we try to hit all three of those. So I guess a nice place for us to maybe start talking right now would be, okay, you've got a game. Or you've got the idea. Let's go back that far. You've got the idea and say, hey, this is a game I want to produce, which you toy around with that. Now, how do you take that from here's my idea and this is the one I want to go with to here's a game I'm ready to put on Kickstarter? So basically what I'm kind of trying to get at is do you have a process in place for when you design games? I do now. The way that – and I've learned a lot thanks to Twitter. And, you know, I, you know, you and I have basically met because of Twitter. So I, the first thing I would say to anyone that wants to, do, to design a game is, is join Twitter. And then I do a pretty solid job of grooming my lists to get, you know, real people that aren't like interesting and or in that field. So you don't even have to follow how, me. How the hell am I still on the list then? I find you very interesting. That's, <laughs> oh, so Adam, we've, We've got to get you better friends. <laughs> well, you know, I, I personally think you, you say things worth listening to. So, you know, the first thing as a game designer, no matter how great you think your idea is, let me just tell you, it's not. A long time ago, I talked to a gentleman named Steve Danuser. He's a game designer. He worked on EverQuest 2, and then he worked on the 38 Studios project, which, of course, didn't go south. But he said, it's awesome that you have a great idea. He's like, a great idea will buy you a cup of coffee, and that's it. The people that actually make games execute. That's what they do. They're finishers. And that's the same thing I tell people about writing books. It's you could have the best story in the world. And chances are there are unpublished works that are better than anything. But it's what I always tell people. I'm not a best-selling author. I'm not a great writer. I'm, I'm good. I'm not going to like, you know, completely deprecate myself. I'm not an expert game designer. I'm not a great game designer, but I'm good. But I'm a finisher. That's the one thing I do. So you have to have that in mind. The idea is you come up with your idea, 
but you have to keep pushing it forwards one step at a time. So the biggest thing that I've learned, so these are lear- things I've learned through trial and error or through all these amazing people on Twitter who are more than willing to help you for nothing. You have to decide boundaries of your game because it can't be everything. So in my case, when I kind of started looking at it, I learned that lesson early on because some of my early playtesting tried to take the game in a really skewed direction. I tested it with hardcore magic players, and they wanted another magic, and that's not what I had want, tried to do. So in the example of Havoc and Hijinks, it was a very simple premise. We were standing in a line for a panel at Dragon Con, or we were sitting waiting on a panel. I don't remember exactly. And my wife just looked at me and she said, this is kind of boring. I wish we had some kind of game that we could play that was didn't require a lot of pieces, but was still kind of fun. I said, okay, I agree. And she said, and it should have cute dragons. I said, okay, because I do what my wife tells me. So, <laughs> Good man. <laughs> yeah, my wife wanted a game that we could play quick that had cute dragons. Easy. So I said, all right, I'm going to sit down and I'm just going to try my hand at putting something together that does that. Because I couldn't find anything. We play kittens in a blender. We play nuts. Those are very fun if you've never played them. They're fun games. But she wanted something with cute dragons, and neither of those have cute dragons. And Nuts is fun, but Nuts is cute squirrels and a million nut jokes. So <laughs> we want to do our thing. So I kind of made up some cards in a very meticulous engineering way, because that's, like I told you, I'm a data engineer. That's what I do. So I built a spreadsheet. Honest to goodness, and I know game designers out there are laughing their heads off as they listen, but I built a spreadsheet, and I very scientifically said, okay, what am I going to do? And I came up with six, at the time, elements and six dragons, and I started building this thing out, and I balanced it very tightly to the point where it was, you know, really tight. And I just came up with some simple mechanics. I built a bunch of cards. We we wrote them out on index cards, and then she and I played. And surprisingly, it wasn't that bad. I mean, it had a lot of rough edges. I mean, it's like trying to spoon something with a knife, but the point is, is there was a utensil there. There was a utensil there. So I looked at what worked, what didn't, and I took it to some friends, and my friends played it. And so one of the buddies gave me high praise. He said, listen, now that I've played it, I'm going to say something. When you said you had made a game, I assumed it was going to be the worst thing on the planet, and I was going to sit here through tons of boredom and go, oh, my God, what is happening? He's like, but I actually like what you're doing. He's like, I don't think you're there, but there's something here. And I said, awesome. Thank you. So... From that point, it was iterative, right? But I always kept coming back to, when testers would try to inject other things, I kept coming back to, has to play quick, has to be easy to learn, has to have cute dragons, has to not have a lot of components. And I found out later from talking to professional game designers, that's what you do. You know, the what is the quote that they keep using for me? When there's nothing left to cut, you're done. And that's how I get to taking a game from an idea to something that we could actually publish. That's the, the, I guess, the high, high level overview of it. But how about things like, okay, so you played it, you played it with your wife. Did you make any changes before you took it to your friends then? Oh, yes. <laughs> Very much so. Yes. It went through a lot of changes. I mean, and it still has, and it still does to this day. I mean, we are basically nine days from launch and we're, we're making minor tweaks. We're not making these like sweeping changes, but what, what we do now is what we call polishing. So, I just continuously play the game, and if something sticks out, then we, you know, we smooth it off. So, yeah, I mean, very, very iterative. And the cool thing about a card game without a ton of moving pieces 
is you can just do it on the fly, right? So initially, my wife said, okay, I like the, the idea, I like the dragons, I like what you got going on here. And I said, okay. And we kind of played that, and it kind of functionally worked, but there were some points where the game kind of broke down, and so we smoothed that. By the time I really got it to my friends testing, the actual turns functioned and the game didn't break down. But then it got to the point where it's like, well, this card is useless. This card doesn't make sense. This one's confusing. And then the biggest thing early on for my friends were, I don't care about my dragon. And so the, my whole worldview for this was, there are six dragons and six elements, and they're supposed to play slightly differently. And all my friends are sitting here telling me, I don't care about my dragon. Okay, well, that's that's trouble. So that's that was the first big iterative step where I went and I said, okay, got to keep the core rules, but I want to give every dragon a unique feel. And that actually led me to another big step, which was I couldn't do it with six dragons. And also to launch a game that's relatively balanced in a reasonable amount of time, I had to cut two dragons and two elements completely, which that alone made the game so much better because I wasn't really prepared to add those things yet. I didn't have the tools and the mental capacity to understand that many. So we cut two dragons. We cut some gameplay mechanics that actually weren't very fun. And then I repolished the dragons to be a personality, so to speak. So now we have four dragons with personality. And that's kind of the iterative process we've gone through. So that was a major step. And I like to say to do that is test, 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 test. Because the other thing I've learned is people that love you will lie to you. (laughs) I mean, thankfully, I have some friends that won't, that will be blunt and honest. But the vast majority of your friends don't want to hurt your feelings. And if they don't super enjoy something, they might enjoy it a little just because it's something you made and they appreciate that. And then they'll lie to you. So iterate and test a little at a time. And the one just wonderful thing we've had, again, because of Twitter, again, because of the local North Carolina community, I have put this game in front of at least, and I, you know, I don't really, I should probably keep track. That's something I would learn, you know, about. I'm not a good marketing guy and I'm not a good that kind of guy. But I have put the game in front of a hundred people that have no reason to like me. And I've gotten positive feedback. So that's what you judge by. I mean, really. And you're still going to get feedback like, I don't like that this dragon doesn't fly. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. But there's no flying in this game. That doesn't it doesn't make sense. He can fly. If you want him to fly, he flies. It's just in the imagination. So you've done quite a bit of blind playtesting as well? We have done a decent amount of blind playtesting. Now, I have let a lot of blind playtesters have it, but I haven't done structured blind playtests. As in, like, they're not filling out surveys. It's more of just the whatever you want to throw back my way. And so a lot of people on Twitter have played it. A lot of secondhand people, which has been great. Like, my core friends have taken it to their friends outside of our circles and have done blind playtesting and recorded feedback. There has been a lot of blind playtesting, but I can't produce things for you. Now, structured, controlled playtesting, yes, we have lots of surveys and whatnot. And we had the pleasure, really, of doing an unpub mini at Atomic Empire. I can't say enough good things about the unpub program or about Atomic Empire. Yeah, I love the Unpub and the Protospiel events. They're just great resources that I think every game designer should try to get to at least one time. Because if you go once, you're going to try to go whenever you can. Oh, absolutely, yes. If we had another Unpub come anywhere nearby, I would go, even just to help. You know, the guy that runs it's a really good guy, works hard. I would just help run one, but it was a lot of fun. I liked that a lot. 
So you've got your game, you've gone from idea to, hey, this is pretty solid. What went into going, you know what? I want this to go on Kickstarter. What kind of uh, process or research or preparation did you do there? Well, I would say a massive amount. One thing that I have to disclose where actually I now, now it makes sense where you ask me what kind of geek would I be in secret that I might not think I'm a geek. I am a Kickstarter geek. I am a recovering Kickstarter aholic. I used to overspend on it without a shadow of a doubt and I had to rein that in. Now I, I should also mention for starters, full disclosure, I have two successful Kickstarters under my belt. So I'm two and oh right now. I kickstarted the last two books very successfully and learned a ton just from doing that. Now, granted, that alone is not enough. Then I was just really passionate about Kickstarter in general. I loved it. I was interested in it because when I first started getting into it, it truly was something where the little guy could take an idea that and had and have nothing. Literally, you have nothing. It's just, I have this idea. I want to try to do it. Help me. And that's all it was. You would make a presentation, and you didn't have to have anything else. And I'll get into that. So I, I studied that, and I studied the psychology. And like, so for instance, Richard Bliss, I pretty much read everything he does, listen to everything he says. There's a lot of other people that have, you know, also helped out. There's a lot of people that'll do the most helpful thing of, here is what I screwed up. Like, that, that's just a blog post. It's like, this is where I screwed up. And I can give a lot of advice of where I screwed up in my first project and then screwed up in the second project. The funny thing about it is, I did better on the first one, the one that I had no idea, and I was just a wing and a prayer, than I did on the second one. So that's where that comes into, like, why Kickstarter? The other reasons on, quote-unquote, why Kickstarter is, well, I've done two and they're successful, so it makes sense to me to do that than basically mortgage my house to make something happen. Now, for a game, I don't even have an option. And, you know, and I'll get into this a little bit, but from my perspective, and this is the one thing I want people to understand, these days, game companies that can fully afford to produce their games go on Kickstarter. And I have no problem with that. There's no, you have every right to, there's no reason why you shouldn't. But that has unfortunately set a level of expectation, right? So you get on these and you basically see a completely done game. As a good example of run running right now, you know, look at agents, right? They're running their Kickstarter now. It's going to end at the end of this month, and they're saying they can ship in November, which tells me they're ready to go because for me to ship, I need 140 days. Like, that's what I need to order, produce, and that's not even to finish the game. I'm talking like that is if I had the game in hand today, as in like right now, everything 100% done, it would take me 140 days to get it to my warehouse, and that doesn't even count getting it to you. So these guys who have put together an awesome Kickstarter a great-looking game. They've got... They're on their ball. They know what they're doing. Well, they're going to ship in two months after their Kickstarter? My suspicion is is they've already got the funds. They've already got it with the printer. They've been working in the background. And they're basically doing a pre-sale. I have no problem with that. That's awesome. But it sets the expectations. So, in my perspective, to run a game at a, any kind of quality level, like at a retail quality level, and that's one of the things that Epic Slant Press is, I'm not going to give you something that's not something I want to play with. I refuse. So to run a game at a decent quality level, you have to make a huge minimum order. And that's a lot of money. And, you know, in fact, I'm looking at that spreadsheet right now, and I'm not going to go into exact costs, but at the minimum order is well over $5,000 for the smallest order I can make, well over $5,000. And that's just the product. Then you have to get it to America from China, which unfortunately I went to like a ton of American companies, and I wanted to go American only 
but the game would be almost triple the cost. I couldn't do it, especially when the competitors are going to China. If you look at a Kickstarter and you see that the average price of a card game is $20 and mine's 60 you're going to say, well, what are you doing? I'll say, well, it's 100% made in America, and that's going to motivate some people, and other people will be like, I appreciate that, but I'm sorry, I can't do it. Real quick, I want to sure. point out something, too. Uh, you said the minimal order that you could do is going to cost you at least $5,000. Yes, the minimal. Right. And I just want to point out, I mean, we're talking about a card game. We're not talking about a board game with a ton of components, a ton no. of parts. Right. This is a card game. And the reason I point that out is because of how many people basically put projects up that they... The expectation now is that you have to have a low funding threshold and hope and pray you get what you actually need. Correct. That is correct. And so let's talk about that then. Sure. But you know what? Full disclosure. So, okay. Anyone that wants to run the numbers, let's talk about that. The minimum I need just to produce is over $5,000. It's over, you know, well over. Then to ship it's going to cost another almost three. That puts me at eight right there, right? Well, I've still got to get it to my backers. I still have to pay my editor, my technical writer. I have to pay my artist. I have to pay, you know, for any stretch goal type stuff. So I figured out I would probably need around $15,000. That was about my guess to basically come out of this and not lose my hind end. Now, we've talked about that, though. The expectation is you want to set a lower goal so you can make it and then hope it overfunds, that your stretch goals are attractive enough to push people to keep going, right? Right, yep. Well, because the other thing, too, is people fund funded projects. Your first 30% in Kickstarter is the hardest. I mean, it's not supposed to be, but, I mean, it's not really the hardest, depending on your plan, but 30% yields a huge chance of success. I mean, that's the thing. Like, people don't realize this, but Kickstarters that go over 30% are almost going to fund. If they go to 50%, then it's like a 95% chance that you're going to fund. If you hit 30% on day one, it's like a 100% chance you're going to fund. Unless you do some gross mistake and people start backing out, you're going to make it. So we're going to ask for 10 which there's a gap there, right? $5,000. But the thing about it is, in my case, it's not going to torpedo the project because I said up front, I told my team, I can afford to put in $5,000 of my own money if I have to. It's not going to put me out of the, on the street, and I want to make this thing happen because it's cute, it's fun, and I just want to say I did it. Even if we never get in Target, even if we never get on shelves, I just want to say I put together something that people liked, and I got it to their house, and that's the goal. But it's like you said, now the expectation is, you know, and I and I had that thought for a second for myself. I was like, maybe I should ask for eight, but... My rule is I'm only willing to go in what I set. So I can ask for 10 because I'm willing to put five and that gets me to 15. That's a good way to do it. I mean, that's, I kind of feel bad for people on Kickstarter now because that, that expectation has been set. Because when somebody truly comes out with what they need, people automatically attack it. And, and one of the first things that they kind of do is, well, you know, this game, which is somewhat similar, only asked for this. Yep. It's unfortunate. But at the same time, I do think, like what you did, you probably do need, well, you, you definitely need to take a step back and say, okay, what can I put in? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. This is my idea. I want to see it succeed. And it's potential that I, if, if I really want to see it succeed, I may need to put something in. 
So that's something I think that almost everybody should do and hopefully does do. Oh yeah. But you're right. It's, you didn't drop down to eight because no, I can afford five. Right. That is perfectly acceptable to me. And again, I've been around it long enough and I've been around enough people that make and produce and design games and all that good stuff. I know there's serious cost behind a lot of this stuff. <laughs> yes. And yes. it, it's just, it kind of breaks my heart just when I start seeing those conversations. It's like, you know what? Don't judge that. Judge, judge the game. And if this is what needs to be made, let's either get it there or, you know, walk away if you're not comfortable with it. <laughs> I mean, and that's exactly what it comes down to. And, you know, and I have very strict rules put in place. Like, so Epic Site Press has Kickstarter policies, which is people might like, well, you're such a small company. I was like, yes, but I have always been about my customer and my employees and I'll deal with the money on the backside if I have to, you know. So our thing is we will only go to Kickstarter when we're almost done and there's basically not going to be a stop, right? So, for instance, the, if you look at the Havoc and Hijinks beta, play uh, print and play right now, it's pretty much done. I mean, there's art on every card. The cards are basically done. There's one I'm looking at balancing right now, but that's just one little thing. You've got enough that you could comfortably play the game. So really, and then that's actually, the funny thing is, is that's not even complete because I'm holding back some of the finished art because obviously, you know, I should. So, you know, I have a functional game and I have functional review decks right now. I mean, they're in my hands from an American printer. That's just the decks. It's fun. It works. So, you know, that's the thing though. It's still a risk, right? But I've got, well, I committed to put in and I think everyone needs to be prepared for that because the other thing is, I have done a lot to nail my costs down as much as humanly possible and not do estimates. And, you know, I, you know, lock people into contracts and, and a lot of Kickstarters, they don't, I don't think they do this because I mean, look at how many have blown up. And like, for instance, just to name one and not to pick on them, but the relaunch of kittens in a blender. To me, it's very clear that those guys had no idea what they were doing. And I'm sorry if you're listening guys, but let's face it. When you finished your Kickstarter and then you said, you had started talking to printers and you were quote unquote surprised by how much it cost. That tells me you didn't do your due diligence. I can tell you right now to the penny what my printer quoted me and I have a locked in quote. I can tell you pretty close what a freight is from China is. I can tell you pretty close how much it's going to cost me to ship it to you. I've got estimates and models. I can scale up if I say have a runaway project that scales up to a hundred thousand dollars. I'm good. I'm not going to quit my job and move across the country. And not produce the game. <laughs> uh, I think people know what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, I'll I'll be putting out our geek news uh, later tonight, probably, and that's we talk about it a little bit too. Yeah, and so you gotta have to understand how Kickstarter works, and so that's the thing. Like these days, if you have not done your homework and you're gonna go with the old, like I'd say, core Kickstarter mentality of, I have this idea, I want to try it, I'm gonna put it on there. There are some areas of Kickstarter where that is alive and well, and there are areas where that is dead. And unfortunately, on the game section, I believe that is dead. You're you're competing with too many big fish, which is my honest concern, because I am not taking a 100% retail quality finished product and putting it on Kickstarter. I don't have the money to get there, so I'm taking a good idea that is at least to well beyond a draft stage, and I'm going to say to everybody, including everyone listening, Please, we are the little guy. Would you consider supporting us instead of saying someone that could probably do this on their own? And again, every right, but I'm hoping that 
the small underdog hometown Kickstarter project will attract some of those competitive dollars. I know we haven't gotten into the actual um, description and all that good stuff of, of Havoc and Hijinks yet, but I got a question for you, and, and maybe sure. we'll just go ahead and talk about it here before we get to that. Sure. Do you have any concern at all for hitting the casual market, since the casual game side can be kind of hit or miss on Kickstarter? Hugely concerned. So that's the problem. We try, we're trying to be two things, and that's a dangerous place to be. So the initial idea is, I would like, my major target audience is casual, anybody can play this. That is my true core demographic. Because, I mean, I could play the game with my mother, which she's not a gamer, but she she can play Havoc and Hijinks. It's a little rougher, but she can still play it. I don't know that my mother is a Kickstarter type of person. Now, granted, mom's going to be there supporting on day one, and mom is under specific instructions as part of our plan that she has to deliver 30 backers on the first day. <laughs> my mom will do that. She's a social butterfly. She has a big network of friends. She's taking care of those people's kids. She will, I have no doubt that my mom will deliver me 30 backers, which by the way, again, folks, part of your plan, but we'll get, I'll cover that later if we have time. But do I think that the casual market, the people that walk through Target and buy Uno and now you can buy Catan, but that buy, pick those games up and play it. Do I think that they're going to jump on Kickstarter and buy this? No, that would be unrealistic. And that is a huge risk on my part. So what have I done? Havoc and Hijinks has a bit of depth to it. It's not super depth, but it's got enough depth that you can plan two or three turns. It's got different gameplay. It has replayability. I'm hoping, begging, praying, and asking the core board gaming community to pick this up as something that you would actually probably enjoy as a filler game. I hate saying it's, it seems terrible to say your game's a filler game, but for those people, it's a filler game. But you have a good filler game at a reasonable price that you can also then use to play with your non-board gaming friends to introduce them to the genre and bring them in. So I am counting on the core board gaming community to evangelize for me. And that can be a completely terrible idea. That's our risk, right? Right. I hope it's not a risk. I've had this conversation a couple times with a couple other people that have come on that are kind of working in this, this same vein, that are trying to break that casual Kickstarter bubble. And I think it needs to be popped. I really do. I, I think we need to remember ju- exactly what you said, is that we we have these games, and there's nothing wrong. To me, there's nothing wrong with a filler game. I, a filler game has its place. And it may not make up an entire game night, but it can definitely be a good part of a game night. Sure. But then on the other side of that, like you said, is all of us hardcore gamers, the majority of us hardcore gamers, you should never really say all or never and all that right. kind of stuff. But the majority of us hardcore gamers have either the spouse, family members, mm-hmm. or casual friends that eventually come over, and they may be willing to play a game here and there, and you're not going to break out your heavy Euro-themed games. You're going to yeah, break out Twilight Imperium. Like this. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and, and you need that. And it, it's this kind of game. It's this kind of that casual middle ground that's going to get us to a point where if you get your casual gamers to enjoy that kind of stuff enough, they will eventually say, Hey, you know what? What else do you got? What, what's some of those other things that you kind of talk about sometimes? That's, and that's how I look at it. And, you know, and the biggest success that I tout for this is Chris, my co-host, doesn't play a lot of board games, but he played this in a very, actually, early state without any too much to look at. And he sat down with his wife and he said, honey, play this with me. And she's not a gamer. She's a nice, lovely woman, but she's not a gamer. 
And she looked at him like, oh, I know what kind of game this is. I'm not going to enjoy it. And she loved it. And she wanted to play it again. And to me, I said, okay, I've, I've hit it. Now I just have to prove it to other people. All right, you know what? We could talk forever, Adam. This is this is awesome so far, but let's make sure we hit on why we're here. Let us hear what Havoc and Hijinks is in your words. Sure thing, I, absolutely. But yeah, no, actually, I would love to actually continue this conversation. Maybe we do another show, or you come on our show because I just love talking about this stuff. I'm not I'm not a great plug and pitch man, so I'll, I'll I'll get it though. We'll keep it in here, folks. So, like I said, Havoc and Hijinks is a simple. Easy to learn, kind of tough to master because strategies keep coming out that you never anticipate. Card game. It's only cards. You don't need a lot of space to play. 84 cards, two decks, four dragons. You take on the role of a sickeningly cute young dragon. Basically, your parents have looked at you and saw that you're kind of an underachiever. You don't really want to collect your own hoard. You've been looking at their treasure, and they decided, you know what? You get the boot. So they kick you out of the nest. They give you... One bag of bronze talons, which is nothing. It's a tiny amount of coin. And they say, good luck. So that's what the premise of the game is, is your goal is you have to go out into our fantasy setting, which we've got and we're doing some other stuff with, and collect treasure through whatever means necessary. You can make it as dark or as lighthearted as you want. It's all up to the imagination. But what really sells the sort of how dire the situation can be to this poor underachieving dragon is all the parents got together beforehand and they all kicked their kids out. So now you have to compete with all these other slacker dragons that are out there. All these young dragons are now out in the world and sometimes things don't go your way because, again, you didn't pay attention in dragon school. So basically each turn has a random and a controlled element. You flip from our Havoc deck Sometimes you go out and you scare some peasants and get some coins and come back. Sometimes you try to scare some peasants, but they were actually knights and things don't quite go your way. Then once that's done and you've tried to create some havoc on your turn, then you basically try to get one up on the other dragons, and that's the hijinks. You do mischief and little tricks and pranks to try to get treasure away from them, and and that's pretty much the whole game. And so the general idea is... Whichever little dragon gets to to hoard worth 15 is the winner. You are declared the least slack of the slack dragons, and and they rain upon you praise. (laughs) Awesome. So when are you looking to launch? We are launching on August 10th at 5 p.m., and one of the fun, extremely nerve-wracking things about it is Atomic Empire has been so kind, they've agreed to let us host a launch party at their store. Their store is very busy. And it's very large. So my suspicion is, on a Saturday in the early evening, there's probably going to be about a 100 people there. So if I click that launch button and it just sits at zero while I got a 100 people staring at me, oh, that's going to be rough. And uh, are you going to be at Gen Con? I am going to be at Gen Con. We are doing the first exposure playtest hall, which is for basically controlled playtesting. We're a little bit of beyond that, but I, it seemed like a fun thing to do, and I always feel like I can get more feedback. We're also going to be doing some sort of, I guess, op- whatever open gaming, so that if people want to come and play, they can play open gaming. And then we're also doing, James Mathis is doing the board design gamer meetup yes. thing, and we are doing that too. So, But really, as I like to say, I'm not a great pitch man. I just like to talk to people. So I, so many of my Twitter feed is going to be there. So my goal is I'm going to make a bingo card with all the Twitter handles that are going to be there. And I'm just going to try to fill it out. That's my goal. I'm going to try to get to that meetup towards the end of the evening. I got something right when it starts, but I'm hoping to be there towards the end. 
otherwise, you know, like uh, you may have seen, you know, myself in the Cardboard Jungle are doing uh, setting up over at the JW Hotel Saturday evening. You should swing by and, and say hi if you get a chance over there. I did see that, and I want to crash it. You just need to remind me of the time. I mean, that's my goal. So I definitely, like I said, I, of course, I get to look at you on the video, and you can see a picture of me. But I'm a big fan of meeting people, shaking their hand, and having a conversation. That's I'm a social geek. That's what I do. That's why I played MMOs. And I used to go to MMO conventions all the time just to do that exact same thing. We've been talking about doing a, a couple things uh, with the seminar. Basically, uh, you know, I, I get to interview one person every other week and unfortunately for every one person i get to interview i turn away at least 10 <laughs> mm-hmm. which i hate but it makes me appreciate it all the more well so i'm i'm toying around with doing a uh, like a lightning type thing where everybody gets a few minutes and try to string them together um so i can at least get something and still do the out the the one person interview every other week so we were trying to come up with you know if we're only giving a limited amount of time here what questions do we really want answered and I like this one, so I want to present it to you. So you get to be the first one to answer this question. Oh, my goodness. I, I am I am now ready. So for Havoc and Hijinks, which is coming to Kickstarter very soon, one of our listeners said that they would like to know, what is the one thing about your game that would make somebody go, oh, my God, I have to back this now? Only one thing. Couple things. I mean, the, you know, I'm I'm working out the rough edges, and you and I are actually doing a full <laughs> interview. But you know, uh, true. The, w- what's the big selling point? I guess is really what they want to want to get at. It is a true light strategy game that you can pretty much play with anyone, and uh, that's from the gameplay perspective. If I was to give one other thing, when folks see the finished art, I want to say we're like a like a double threat. You know, the the game actually plays pretty good. And if we put it with any other art, it would still be okay. But our artist has done really great job. If you like this aesthetic, like some people, it's too cute. I understand that. No problem. So I would say when you see the art, especially since the base level to get the game is only $15 shipped and to get the special Kickstarter exclusive, I think just even if you don't play the game, you're going to love the art. And it's it's not 84 unique pieces of art. It's close to, I think, 75 unique total pieces of art for this that are fully done. And I think that's going to really motivate people. All right. And uh, before we leave, one thing that I do like to have our guests uh, share, what do you consider important things that you want to make sure other people thinking about using Kickstarter know? So do you have any lessons you'd like to share with our listeners? All right. I will try to be succinct. Yes, I do. Number one, get on Twitter, make friends, and actually make friends. Don't just whore your product. So for every one tweet that you put out selling, you better have one tweet where you genuinely connect with a human being and one tweet where you talk about someone else's product because it's all about sharing. Remember, what you learned in kindergarten is the most important thing. Be out there, be social, share. Start that eh, 14 years before you launch your project. If you can't start 14 years, you need a good solid nine months. And I'm not kidding. Don't think I'm crazy because it takes a lot to build up a following and for you to get those true interactions. Get on there nine months before you ever start to launch. Start making friends. Find out the exact right community you're looking for. Follow those people's followers. Get their lists. Engage them. Talk to them. Be yourself. Be genuine. Be social. That's number one because that leads me to number two. Prepare to blitz on day one because you can win or lose 
in your first four hours. People think that's an exaggeration, but it's not. Look at the data. Look at Kickstarter data. Look at KickTrack data. Look at some of these experts' data. You will quickly find that there are certain milestones that every Kickstarter follows. And every Kickstarter looks like the San Francisco Golden Gate Bridge. It starts high, then it lulls, and then it goes back up. And so you have to take advantage of the first three days and the last three days, although some people will say last 48 hours. So motivate your entire base. If you have not lined up people that know for a fact what day, what minute, what hour you're going to launch, so that as soon as you launch, that money starts coming in, be prepared for a slugfest. So our tentative goal was 100 people in the first four hours. And that sounds crazy, but like I said, my mom's going to try to get 30 people. You know, if I count friends, you know, my wife's going to be hiding in the bathroom, you know, trying to support the project from a cell phone. I mean, it sounds crazy, but that's what you have to do. Be prepared, folks, because everything you do in the beginning impacts the whole thing. So always remember that. If you can hit 30% on the first day, you're probably going to be just fine. So that's my how to win at Kickstarter in five minutes. All right. Well, that's awesome. So Havoc and Hijinks launching August 10th on Kickstarter. Any last minute thoughts you want to share with our listeners about the project before we wrap up? I'd like to do just a couple little plugs, if that's okay. You bet. Go for it. Okay. If you like board games and such, follow me on Twitter, at Feral ES, just, and just to talk, because I like interesting people. Like So be prepared, though, because I will actually talk to you. So if you're not prepared for that, might not be the guy to follow. I pretty much answer anybody that adds me, unless it, I just happen to miss it. So anytime you want to add me, that's fine. Number two, check out the page in advance, folks. It's HavocAndHijinks.com. Havoc is spelled with a K, not a C. We're being cutesy. HavocAndHijinks.com. You can play a web-based demo app to see how the game plays. You can download the print-and-play beta. You can look at the rules. And there's a really terrible gameplay video out there that I've hidden. I'm going to shoot a new one this weekend. But it's out there if you look real hard. Extra credit if you find it. So check out the website. And then the other thing that I will always say, if you already know that you're going to support my project, I'm not saying please support my project. I'm saying if you already know you are, Please support it on day one, hour one, so that when I'm standing in front of those 100 people, they don't look at me like I'm crazy. Even one dollar, that's all that matters. Just, I don't want to be super embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll try to help make sure you're not super embarrassed, Adam. (laughs) Huzzah! Thank you. And again, show notes, people. That's why I put them out there. So we will have links if you uh, are too lazy to go Google. (laughs) (laughs) We will get you to Adam. (laughs) All right, Adam, this has been awesome. I mean, seriously, this time has flown. I feel like you and I could continue this conversation for another hour, but you and I can definitely have another conversation at another point in time. I would love that, and I really want to thank you for letting me be on the show. And again, yeah, I've really, truly enjoyed you letting me ramble on for so long because that's what I do. So, you know, thank you to you and all your listeners for making this happen, and I think I think we have to do another part, you know, win, lose, or draw. I mean, even if you want to be a guest on our show or we do another one here or we just make something up, I certainly want to keep talking because that's what I do. We'll make it happen. All right. Either way, I'm more than happy to come over. Excellent. I'd love that. All right. Again, Havoc and Hijinks, August 10th, coming to Kickstarter. Check it out. Check it out. 